and welcome to the CNI podcast, the podcast where we take a deeper look at what's happening in the world and try to decipher the bigger picture. I'm your host, Nick, and this week we're going to take a look at money in political campaigns and what the current state of our political campaign says about U.S. politics. Now, earlier this week, I found myself reading an article about how Donald Trump's campaign funds were being bled dry by his legal expenses. And the article focused mostly on the ethics of spending campaign money on legal fees. But all I could think about when I was reading was about the statement that Donald Trump had raised $56 million in just six months for his campaign. And then my brain led me down this path on ethics of such enormous campaign funds being the norm for American politics. Why is this a norm? How did it become the norm? And what are the implications of that norm on American politics? To really understand, I think we need to first take a look at an important cornerstone in U.S. history, one that would set a tone for how Americans view themselves for decades to come. So 160 years ago, a tall, slender man went and stood out in a field in Pennsylvania in a crowd where not long before over 50,000 Americans had been killed or wounded. And he stated, quote, that we here highly resolve that the dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. This famous Gettysburg Address by Abe Lincoln was the definitive public statement by a president that the U.S. was and is a government of, for, and by the people. That phrase has since become one of the defining characteristics of American culture, regularly cited by Americans through history and the globe, movies, TV, books, the news, and political campaigns as being the reason why America is the greatest country on earth. But over the last 160 years, has that proved to be true? In order to answer that, I think we need a little history lesson on what the U.S. has done and undone through the last 160 years with legislature pertaining to political campaigns. I'll try to be brief and highlight a few of the more important moments before we look at how things stand today and what the implications are for the current state of things. Now, here's kind of just a brief summation of major legislation over the years that have been geared toward regulating political campaigns. One of the earliest being the Tillman Act of 1907, which was enacted to address campaign finance concerns in the U.S. and stated that banks and corporations organized under congressional authority cannot make monetary contributions with any election to any political office. It also made it illegal for any corporation to contribute money in elections where a president or vice president, elector or representative in Congress are to be voted for. After that, you get the federal Corrupt Practices Act of 1925, which aimed to increase transparency and regulate some political funding. So it determined and defined political committees, what a political committee is, and mandated that each political committee have a chairman and a treasurer that would keep track of and then report contributions and expenses within five days of them happening. The act also claimed that any donation over $100 needed to be disclosed of identity and purpose for donation. Then we have the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, which was more largely about unions than anything else. However, 
it prohibited labor organizations from making contributions related to federal elections. And then perhaps the largest of all of these were the FECA of 1971, or the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971, which was designed entirely to regulate political campaign spending and fundraising. It largely focused on disclosing the contributions of campaigns and finding out how money was spent. And then in 1974, it was later amended again to put legal limits on campaign contributions and expenditures. However, this act was slowly dismantled over the years. In 1976, there was a court case in the Supreme Court called Buckley v. Vallejo, which determined that limits on campaign expenditures as outlined in the Campaign Act of 71 are unconstitutional as they violate the First Amendment's right to freedom of speech, saying that by limiting spending on political communications, it reduces expression, which therefore cuts under the First Amendment right to free speech. That was then further acted upon in 1978 with First National Bank of Boston versus Belodi, which once again stated that under the First Amendment, corporations have the right to make contributions to ballot initiative campaigns. Then it took a little while longer, but in 2010, the Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission stated again that freedom of speech prohibits the government from restricting independent expenditures for political campaigns by corporations, including nonprofits, labor unions, and other associations. Further, in 2014, with McCutcheon versus Federal Election Commission, it was once again decided that an imposed limit on contributions over a two-year period is unconstitutional. One of the clauses that do remain from the previous acts that I mentioned is the limit for $100 contributions and anything over that needing to be disclosed in identity and what the donation will be for, the contribution will be for. It doesn't do much to address a loophole where you can just make many, many $100 donations and not have to ever disclose what your identity is. But that about wraps up the history lesson on the legislature that we have. So what are the major takeaways and what have the implications been? So it seems that the simplest summary of takeaways is twofold. First off, you have the Federal Election Commission and the acts that had tried were attempted and were passed in 1971 and then amended positively in 74 before being dismantled slowly over time. And that the Federal Election Commission maintains to this day was to serve, quote, to limit contributions to ensure that wealthy individuals and special interest groups did not have a disproportionate influence on federal elections. Meanwhile, on the other side, the numerous amendments that followed as part of Supreme Court rulings from 1976 onward claim that placing limits on campaign funding goes against the First Amendment. So how does that play out? How has it played out? For my part, I think that when you look at the numbers, the Congress and FEC of 1971 had valid worries, and worries that have sadly come to be realized. So let's look and see why. The most recent Senate election was in 2022, and thanks to some of our aforementioned legislature, everyone has to report their funding for the life of that election cycle, which means we can go and see 
that the cheapest Senate election came at the hands of Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who raised a measly $14.5 million to gain his seat in the Senate, while the most expensive Senate seat was to Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia, who spent a whopping $180.9 million for his seat. Now, I know that these days we're used to hearing huge numbers like this bandied about in the news with billionaires buying everything they can see, millions being spent in the government, etc., etc. But let's just put this into perspective for a second. The average American, based on data from 2022, makes just under $70,000. In order for them to make enough money to get even the cheapest seat in the Senate, they would need to work for 207 consecutive years. That would put them, in order to be able to run today and get that cheap seat, they would have needed to start in 1816, less than 30 years after the Constitution was ratified, 10 years before the first train ever carried a passenger, and 44 years before Lincoln ever made his speech. To get the most expensive seat in the Senate, the average American would need to, get ready for this, work for 2,584 years, since 561 BC. That's not only before Rome was an empire, it was before Rome was even a republic, also predating all European society. And that's just for the Senate. If you wanted to be president and you had to compete with the numbers that Joe Biden had for his 2020 election, which was just over $1 billion, you would need to have worked every year for 14,285 years if you were making the average median salary in the US. That's about as far back as the domestication of the dog. So let's hear that again, Mr. Lincoln. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people? I don't think so. By what possible logical argument can we say that the current state of American politics is of, by, or for the people? Now, you might, if you have some real scratch and argumentative skills, be able to say that it's still government for the people. Because that neither has to have any of the people in it, or be by them in terms of the laws. But you can make an argument that the wealthy elite can make laws that benefit the people. I think that becomes a much hairier and less compelling argument when you take into account just how much money it costs to be in politics, as well as legal lobbying and Congress regularly disregarding what people actually say that they want when making laws. But I suppose the argument could be made. As for the other two, a government of the people, meaning consisting of the people, and the people typically speaking about the average larger body of the populace, not the small wealthy caste, it's pretty obvious that that is not the case. Now, I haven't gone through the complete roster of the U.S. Congress, but based on how much money it costs even just to get the cheapest senatorial seat, I am willing to bet that most of them are pretty well off. And being pretty well off, probably not exactly in touch with what the average American has to deal with on a daily basis or what they would like to see from a legislative perspective. So how about by the people? Very similar to of the people, but if it is by the people, then it's people making decisions or at least electing somebody who will represent those decisions and wants and do it for them. I refer you to the last argument where representatives are likely out of touch with actual issues of the average American. 
as well as what the average American would like to see from a policy and legislative perspective. But what does that all say about the state of American politics? After all, it's just one line, even if it's a very deeply ingrained line in American culture and history, it is not mentioned in either the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. Nothing really about government of the United States being by, for, or consisting of the people. I think the easiest and most succinct description of what the implications are for the state of American politics is that we have essentially returned to a nation state that is essentially run by a quote-unquote nobility who contains most of the wealth and power within the country. I think that by virtue of that fact, our founding fathers would be absolutely livid at the state of how politics are run right now. It's obvious based on history that our founding fathers didn't want poor people in politics or to have any say in governance. And that is unfortunate and likely a product of the time that they lived in. But they still wanted anyone who owned land or property to be able to have a voice in the political atmosphere. And by today's standard, that is a very easy bar to hit. And even by their standard, it was a vastly larger majority than what they had been living under previously. And I think that if they were able to live and see today that the governance and governing is being done by a very select few who don't necessarily own any enormous amount of land, but nevertheless hold an enormous amount of wealth and influence, they would think that to be representative of what they deem to be a tyrannical political body that was ruling them from across an ocean who had no concept of what their lives were like, just like our legislative body has no concept of what the average American's lives are like. Now, I want to make it abundantly clear, I am not saying that we need any type of revolution or armed conflict or any such type of thing. I'm saying we're not in a good spot right now and that some reform needs to be done. I think it's ridiculous to claim that prohibiting or limiting contributions for political campaigning somehow impedes the First Amendment right to free speech, when by doing so, you eliminate 95% of your entire populace from being able to participate in governance. Even if it's true that limiting campaign funding somehow does impute on the First Amendment rights, it would go against the Ninth Amendment, which states, and I quote, that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. That is to say that if adhering to one right of the Constitution for one group denies or disparages the larger body of their own unalienable rights, then that should not be permitted. And I think that we have seen with these rulings by the Supreme Court over the last handful of decades regarding campaign funding and limiting campaign funding is defending one small group's right to free speech at the drastic cost of other rights in the Constitution by the larger majority. But I don't mean to pontificate or stand on my soapbox for too long about what my own thoughts are. So I want to reel it in a little bit and just kind of talk more objectively about what the actual real world implications are without getting any more involved about my personal beliefs on the matter. And I just want to go at it purely from what I've learned to do through history and philosophy. Let's just critically think and look at what could happen. So it seems to me that the obvious statement is that the U.S., and the current state of U.S. politics is becoming increasingly more exclusive. That is to say that as years progress, you need to be wealthier and wealthier to have a reasonable chance of participating within the political sphere. 
by doing so, by being more exclusive, you create an ever-growing divide between the largest majority populace and the smaller governing body. In this case, the wealthy. And the implications for that are numerous, and you can see it throughout history. You have our own U.S. revolution when there was a massive divide between the tiny governing body that didn't accurately or at all represent the populace in the Americas. And that divide not just physically over a few thousand miles of an ocean, but also morally and what they believe to be fair caused huge conflict. And there's the French Revolution, which happened a few decades later. Very similarly, massive divergence and debate in whether or not the king at that time had the people's best interests at heart. And then that broke down significantly. You have more recent examples with Weimar Germany turning into Nazi Germany because of similar issues. And it just, uh, it's just not good. It can lead to dictatorship, war, civil and social strife, economic collapse. That may seem extreme to some, but I want you to picture a nation and its people as a series of blocks. The blocks representing political beliefs and how close people are to each other. If you have blocks that are very close together, the political beliefs don't diverge very much and people are relatively closely aligned, you can make a very strong wall together that's hard for bad things to penetrate and get through, such as, you know, a wannabe dictator or a foreign power that has interest in a not nice way in your country. And then as time goes on and you get the kind of increased political polarization that we have here in the United States right now, the blocks get further and further apart, and thus the wall becomes weaker and weaker. And it becomes easy for a dictator figure or a foreign power to intervene and further separate until they can just break right through. In addition to creating that polarization, or also as a symptom of it, as politics become more and more exclusive, the people have less and less of a say, less and less participation, less and less ability to participate in politics and governance, which means that they have less and less representation. It all just boils back down to more polarization and differences in the governing and the people. So it makes it very hard for anyone to really get anything positive out of the situation. Now, can it be fixed? Sure, absolutely it can. Can it be fixed without a revolution or without some major reform? Yes. Much, much slower, if at all. But yes, it can. It's slippery because the same kind of person that can come in and make a positive change and bring people together and create less polarization and bring everybody towards a more unified center would have a lot of the markers of a dictator. They would just be from a more centrist and beneficial moral standpoint than a typical autocrat would. So that can also be dangerous in itself. Another big aspect of this limitless campaign funding that we have in the U.S. that is influenced by corporations and 
super PACs is how it affects the competitiveness of elections and the chances of political newcomers or third party candidates to get into politics and be successful in politics. If you're new, you're not going to attract a big company to give you hundreds of millions of dollars to run for office. It's just not going to happen. They're going to give money to well-established and let's face it, elderly candidates who have been around for a long time and are predictable or easy to manipulate, et cetera, et cetera, which I think has contributed largely to why we have so many elderly people in U.S. politics at the moment, which is a common complaint that I see online and on social media and just in media in general and conversations with people is they are sick and tired of incredibly elderly representatives at the highest levels of political power and governance, which makes them even more out of touch with what the average American is going through because they're, they're well past that. And when they experienced that part of life, it was a different time. With all that being said, maybe I'm being too extreme or too harsh. Who knows? Only time will tell whether this continuing path leads to something bad or if there could be some reform that leads to something good. Either way, I think this is where we have to leave it. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. This has been the CNI Podcast, and I'm Nick, and we will see you next week. Bye.